Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. We're headed to the home stretch of football season and basketball is in full swing. And BetOnline remains the number one spot for all the action this year. Head to the new updated desktop or mobile website to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Use the promo code BLEAVE50, B-L-E-A-V-50, to receive your bonus. BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to bet all of your favorite sports. BetOnline, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of The Take It easy podcast live on the believe podcast network except it isn't live because it's a podcast welcome in everybody it is december 7th according to my count but it may not be that according to your count thanks for stopping in regardless download leave a five-star review follow all the great stuff to help support this podcast on our march to another record-setting month here in december I know y'all are going to come through once again, just like you did in November. We've got a great show planned for you today. We have an oral history of the Clemson Tigers planned for you today because Dan Radakovich, their athletic director of a decade, and Brent Venables, the best assistant coach in the NFL for, or in college football for damn near five years, have both left Clemson in 24 hours. And I'm pretty certain this signifies the end of the Clemson dynasty. And so I wanted to go back and discuss how Clemson got to this point, how Clemson finds themselves in the position they are now, and what this run of success teaches us in the grand lore of college football. It's a history lesson, but it has deeper context about building winners within a sport that is truly, truly unequal. So we'll get to that in a bit. It's going to take up a big portion of the podcast because I did an hour and a half of research 30 minutes of podcast prep, and then recorded the 75 minutes on this here pod. So I put a lot into this, and I really, really love how it turned out. We'll get to that in a minute. But first, I want to talk about Patriots and Bills just as a quick little A-block segment. Because I said on uh, Memes of the Weekend yesterday, I was trying to slide in some Josh Allen Buffalo Bills talk at some point here on the podcast. And I've been saving it since Thanksgiving for a discussion, possibly after a really, really interesting game that determines power dynamics in the AFC East. And then I turned on the television and saw 55 mile an hour winds, snow, and 22 degrees in Buffalo. And I was just like, okay, it's going to be one of these games then. One of these games that we just learn nothing about either opponent. And it's a chess match between coaches and players executing to the best of their abilities while also making some interesting mistakes because funny stuff happens when you have these frigid snow games with winds that are blowing kicks 25 yards in the wrong direction weird stuff is going to happen and this was a 
masterclass in the Bill Belichickian ideology from his book that Seth Wickersham put out that I'm working through. Again, take a shot if you're listening. I'm working through the book. I'm pretty much done with the book at this point, but I've been working through the book for about six weeks now, and this was a Belichick masterclass of if you do your job, the other opponent will make mistakes, and then you can capitalize on it. Always stay even-keeled because your opponent's will make mistakes. And by the way, the Patriots made mistakes at the end of the game too. Like the Patriots had a 14 to 10 lead where they ran the ball on the first 42 of 43 plays of the game. The Patriots had 42 of 43 run plays. It was the middle of the fourth quarter. Mac Jones was one for one with 12 passing yards. And I made this joke over on the Instagram that Bill Belichick has been waiting 30 goddamn years to run the Air Force offense or the Navy offense in the NFL. And damn it, if he wasn't going to do it one time and go for the all-time NFL record for fewest pass attempts in a victory by an NFL team. The previous record was three. He had one pass attempt with six minutes to go in the fourth quarter. It was a 14-10 game. Not only that, of the 42 runs to start the game, all of them were just power runs up the middle. They ran 16 plays to the outside and ran 26 power runs up the middle. So not only was it we're going to run the ball on every single play, we're going to power run the ball on 60% of those run plays. This was like Belichick porn coming into this game. He's just, oh, that's a bad image. I just realized I am so sorry I did that to y'all. But anyways, this was Bill Belichick just coming in and saying, I've wanted to do this for 30 years and tonight's the night I'm going to do it. And then he abandons, and I, I know Josh McDaniels is calling the plays on offense, but Josh McDaniels is basically just like a right-hand man. He's like a mini-me Belichick. Like they're both doing the dance from the second, or was it the second or third Austin Powers movie that mini-me is in? I think it's the second one that you get mini-me. But anyways, they're like mini-me doing the dances together, Belichick and Josh McDaniels. I know that it's not exactly the same there, but anyways, Belichick ends up calling on second and 11, pass, and then screen pass to make it so that there are three passes. And I know I have the rule that says never, ever under any circumstances run the ball on second and 10. But you know what? This is an exception. You run the ball on second and 11. You run the ball on third and 11. Why? Because if you're going down, you're going down exactly the way that you deserve to go down, which is running the ball four yards at a time, power run up the middle, power run up the middle, power run up the middle. That's how you go down in that football game. You either win the game by not throwing the ball or you die trying because at this point you've ran the ball on every single play for three and a half quarters and you're winning the game. You got to commit all the way through. I was so disappointed that they abandoned the game plan at the very end. You got to commit all the way through. And so Belichick ends up punting back to the Bills who, by the way, miss a short field goal because they're kicking into the wind right before that. So they could have kicked the game-winning field goal into the wind instead of trying to go for it on fourth down and having Matt, uh, Josh Allen miss a route with uh, Cordero, with Cole Beasley. And what ends up happening is Josh Allen, and this is not a great game to evaluate Josh Allen from, but it reminded me of something that I've been waiting to talk about going back to the Thanksgiving game against the Saints where they dominated. 
And there was one play I was watching in particular where Josh Allen has a first read of a running back in the flat. And usually that's not the first read unless you're running a Mac Brown offense. But usually your first read is not to have the running back in the flat. But Josh Allen looks to the running back in the flat, looks that person off, even though they're wide open, like they're going to catch the ball and turn up field and get like six to 10 yards on the play. And what ends up happening is as Josh Allen looks to his next read, the pocket begins to collapse. Allen pump fakes once, steps up in the pocket. The pass gets tipped by a lineman, redirected and intercepted. And the running back shouldn't usually be the first read, but then it reminds me of the Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers idea, which is, no, that the first read can be the quick out guy. Now this also reminds me of Ben Roethlisberger. But at the same time, Josh Allen's progressions often look sloppy. And this is, again, this is going to sound like Josh Allen haterism. It's not exactly like, it's better that Josh Allen can use those physical gifts to scramble to his right and throw the ball 50 yards across his body and hit Stephon Diggs on a crossing route, just like he did against the Colts in the playoff game. That's the reason they didn't lose in the wild card in incredible fashion last year. Like, that is the singular thing that defines Josh Allen over other quarterbacks in the NFL. It's the other times where he's not making that play that that's a concern. And this sounds like the issue that I have with Mahomes. And to Mahomes, I say, no, just keep doing what you're doing. The Chiefs will game plan around that. I don't know if the Buffalo Bills are going to game plan around what Josh Allen can't do because the Buffalo Bills don't have the same offense that the Kansas City Chiefs have, and they don't have the same weapons at their disposal. Yes, Dawson Knox is looking more Kelsey-esque this year as like a reliable second option other than uh, obviously Stephon Diggs and trying to use Cole Beasley last year and running the offense they did. They're trying to replicate what the Chiefs do relatively successfully, but also not so much, even though their running game has gotten better as the season's gone along. It seems like Buffalo's abandoning what they did last year and trying to replicate what Kansas City does. Part of that is like Dawson Knox has gotten better and more reliable, and it's a better safety blanket for Josh Allen instead of working Cole Beasley. I guess Cole Beasley can work like a safety blanket because he is a a receptions yards after catch guy. Um, But at the same time, they're trying to use Dawson Knox the same way the Chiefs use Kelsey, where if Diggs is going to command double teams in the defense. They want to be able to just drop one off in the middle. And it's been pretty successful this year. Like Dawson Knox has been one of the better tight ends in the NFL, but Allen's reads often end up shoddy. And then you had that one play where um, right before the missed connection on Cole Beasley on the last play of the game, you have Allen intending to throw to Stephon Diggs, the pocket collapsing, and Allen turning his head to avoid the sack. Like, his first instinct is not to stay in the pocket. His first instinct is to roll away from the pocket. And he does this, and he tries to throw to Dawson Knox in the back corner, and Adrian Phillips just makes a great play on it. Like, he almost does a Mahomes thing to win the game. He puts it right on Dawson Knox. It's just the defense making a play. And that's totally fine at the same time. It's just if he stayed in the pocket a second earlier, they're going to convert on 3rd and 14 to Stephon Diggs and set up first and goal. And again, this is playing the result a little bit. Like both ended up being successful, you know, successful intentions even when the play collapsed. And that's, you know, the difference for Josh Allen. But at the same time, if we want to play the results the other way, 
the only reason Allen was able to get it to Dawson Knox is because uh, I can't remember if it was Judon or Godot, Godio. I don't know how to pronounce his name for the for the Patriots, but someone misses a sack on the play, and Allen's able to keep the play rolling around. And so, if Josh Allen takes a sack, all of a sudden those are the 15 yard sacks that Josh Allen had gotten in trouble with early in his career when he wasn't making the bigger plays that we see Patrick Mahomes make. And we see, um, obviously, uh, I guess Aaron Rodgers sometimes makes it. But more more specifically, Mahomes. Uh, sometimes you'll see, I guess, who else is a baby Mahomes? Russell Wilson makes those plays a lot. Kyler Murray makes those plays a lot, now that I think about it. Um, Dak Prescott sometimes makes those plays, too, where he's rolling around uh, to his right, pump faking, scrambling, doing all that stuff. Sometimes Dak Prescott can do some of that. But all of that to say... Josh Allen is making those plays even if he's looking off second reads early in progressions, which again is not a concern. It's just that, you know, across 35 minutes, eventually, if you're going to get burned by it, it's going to be costly because turnover prevention has kind of become the name of the game in the modern NFL because turnovers can be so costly in determining outcomes of the games. The Bills saw that tonight because multiple turnovers end up being the difference in the game. If you don't have a fumble and a missed field goal, you're walking away with a victory against the Patriots because the Patriots flinched at the very end of the game by throwing an incomplete pass and a screen pass to set up fourth down after a missed Buffalo field goal. So both teams had moments to win that game. There's no reason you should look at this and take away one team is better than the other. There's no way to learn anything from that game. I think it's the same place we were coming into the game, which is the Patriots and Bills are both very good teams. They're going to be one winning the AFC East, the other being the five seed in the playoffs. And for some godforsaken reason, the New England Patriots always seem to win that game. What do I mean by that game? That game that we watched yesterday with potential division stakes on the line and Buffalo's best chance to get a win at home against the Patriots, take over the division, take over the number one seed in the AFC, and the Patriots always seem to win that game. I don't know how they do it. But you're just watching the game and you just kind of expect the Patriots are going to find a way to win that game, which they did. And now they're 9-4 and four on a seven-game win streak. First place in the entire goddamn AFC. New sponsor alert here on the Take It Easy podcast. It is Lightbox Jewelry. Using cutting-edge technology and innovative techniques, Lightbox Jewelry has cracked the science of sparkle, creating the highest quality lab-grown diamonds that you can find at a light price of just $800 per carat. Lightbox lab-grown diamonds are the gift they'll never want to take off, priced so they won't have to. Visit lightboxjewelry.com to add sparkle to your holiday shopping. That's lightboxjewelry.com. Lightbox Diamonds. Never a dull moment. So, the Clemson dynasty as we know it is basically over. And it's rare that you have moments where you can kind of look up and see the end of an era in any sport, but specifically in college football, where dynastic programs 
generally have long, slow declines. And Clemson's had some of that. Like, there's no, like, one moment where everything starts to end. But we we talked not just last year when Clemson lost to Notre Dame in double overtime with DJ Oyungalale at quarterback because Trevor Lawrence was in the COVID protocol. And then when Clemson lost to Georgia... And then when Clemson lost again to NC State earlier this year, they finished the year 9-3. and three. They're going to play in the Cheez-It Bowl. But it's rare that you kind of look up and you see the end of a program and an end of a dynasty in any sport. Like, with Brady and Belichick, you can kind of look up and be like, that broke up, but where there was never really a definitive end point for when... It all stopped, partially because they kept winning all the way through and both continue to win after the fact. But there's not really a point where you look up and see that is the end of a run. Clemson had that over the last 24 hours. Like, this is where everything starts to officially be done. If we were just pointing to signs about Clemson being done as a national powerhouse, we saw it this week. And it was Sunday... When Brent Venables, who had turned down multiple Division I offers in the past on multiple occasions, and not sorry, not just Division I, Power Five head coaching offers. Vanderbilt, he'd passed on that in the past. University of Miami, he'd passed on that. He passed on North Carolina. He had had tons of interviews and offers at Power Five schools, and Brent Venables leaves for the perfect job at Oklahoma. The the uh, not general manager, the athletic director at Clemson for a decade, Dan Redakovich. I hope I get his name right there. I think it's like Serbian or something. But Dan Redakovich leaves Clemson for the University of Miami after Miami hires Mario Cristobal as head coach on Monday. And so within 24 hours, you have the infrastructure at Clemson breaking up. And by the way, the other part of that is offensive coordinator Tony Elliott, who'd been there since 2014 with the Clemson staff. Tony Elliott is interviewing for the Duke job and the University of Virginia job, and it looks like he's probably going to take one of those, considering this is the first time he's done serious head coaching interviews over the past five years. And of course, this all comes on the heels of Clemson not making the ACC championship for the first time since 2014 and Clemson playing in the Cheez-It Bowl, and to a deeper extent, Clemson being now three years removed from winning a national championship. And so when I say the Clemson dynasty is done, this means they're not going to win championships anymore. They're, they're always going to be a very good program, probably with like years of pause in between, but Clemson is always going to be a very, very good program. This was not the case... 20 years ago, that was not a guarantee that Clemson was always going to be a good program. The reason Clemson is always going to be a good program now is because they compete in an ACC with a larger athletic budget by significant numbers than it used to be pre-Dabo Swinney and pre-Dynasty here in the 2010s. That's something that's going to continue. The money is going to be there for Clemson. They'll be able to rebuild something but the money does not make them competitive enough to be a national power like the teams that they have previously been affiliated with, Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, 
schools of that caliber, they're not going to be able to compete at that national level every single year. They are now one of these tier two college football programs can certainly make the college football playoff, and it would be a grand surprise if they were to win a championship. They would need to catch a lightning-in-a-bottle moment to take down one of these teams, similar to the lightning-in-the-bottle moment that they had over the past five years. And so I did a whole lot of research. I did a whole lot of analysis, and I wanted to give an oral history of the Clemson dynasty. Since the dynasty as we know it is over, and this is a perfect inflection point for the dynasty, let's talk about the University of Clemson and how they captured this lightning in a bottle moment to win multiple national championships and be the team that we associate right alongside Nick Saban, the greatest dynasty in the history of college football, and how that Alabama run is so unique that Clemson stacks up to it in a piss-poor fashion, and yet Clemson had one of the great dynasties of the last 30 years in college football. One of the most unexpected as well. So we'll talk about all of that in the lightning in the bottle moment here on an oral history of the Clemson Tigers. Because this feels like a great time to tell the story of the dynasty is when we know the dynasty is ending. It's a great time to reflect especially as Brett Venables after a decade leaves, Dan Radakovich after a decade leaves, Tony Elliott after eight to nine years is getting ready to leave Clemson. This is a great time to reflect on that dynasty and what it was. And so to understand what Clemson became, we're going to start out by going back to Clemson pre-Dabo Swinney. And we could tell this story by going like all the way back to 1981 and winning a championship with Danny Ford and then going on a long bull stretch and having one top 10 season in the 1990s. We could go through all of that, and then they have a really bad down period in between with a lot of like seven and eight win seasons. But the story really should start in 2000, when Tommy Bowden is the head coach at Clemson. So during Tommy Bowden's time at Clemson, they go... Right when he gets in there, they're coming off of a 3-8 and eight season. They fire Tommy West. So Bowden comes in, they go six wins... Nine wins, seven wins. This is starting in 1999. Six wins, nine and three, seven, seven wins, nine and four, six wins in 2004. And then here's the story that kind of tells where Clemson is in the grand scheme of college football. Third place in the ACC Atlantic. It's tied for second in the Atlantic. Again, this is out of seven teams. Tied for second, tied for second, tied for third. This is the run Clemson has for five years, is third, second, 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 third place in their division. They're behind the dynastic program of Florida State. Maryland is on the come up at this time. They have a couple good seasons mixed in. Boston College has a couple years where they're there. NC State has a come up, but everyone's kind of behind Florida State for this run. This is the end of Bobby Bowden's era, not to be confused with Tommy Bowden, who of course is the coach at Clemson at this time. Uh, His dad is Bobby Bowden. And this is a team that is middle of the road in budget in the ACC, and they consistently finish in the middle of the pack in the ACC. Under Tommy Bowden, here were the seasons that they finished ranked. That nine-win season in 2000, they finished ranked 16th. 2003, 22nd, 2005, 21st, 2007, 21st. So they consistently remain as one of these middle-of-the-road programs in college football. And Tommy Bowden, in 2008, gets fired halfway through the season. And interim coach in 2008 is wide receivers coach 
Dabo Swinney. And when Dabo is the interim wide receivers or interim head coach at this time, Dabo is in his 30s. Dabo has never been an offensive coordinator. And Dabo is basically charged with doing mop-up duty for the program, a, a title that Dabo said later in an ESPN interview like he was shocked when the news came in and immediately pivoted to like, this is my program now. We're not, we're not going to worry about what happens after the fact, but this is my program from this point going forward. And so Dabo ends up being the coach in 2008. And this 2008 story is kind of the inflection point that tells the start of how and why I always say Clemson was a lightning in a bottle moment. Because in 2008, Clemson fires Tommy Bowden after losing to Wake Forest. They lose to Georgia Tech immediately the week after. Then they lose to Florida State two weeks later. So they are staring down the barrel of not even making a bowl game at four and five this year, which by the way would break a streak of, I believe, like 24 of 27 years that Clemson has qualified for a bowl game. So anyways, they go at this, at this point, Clemson is sitting at four and five and they have a three game stretch to try and keep their season alive in bowl contention. And they would go win against Duke, which this is Duke at the time. So not great. They win against Virginia and then they play South Carolina in their bowl game. I'm sorry, not their bowl game, in their rivalry game. And this is kind of like an inflection point where people say, if Dabo beats South Carolina, he'll keep his job. If Dabo loses, then they'll go hire someone else, even though they're going to make a bowl game anyways. And they win the game 31-14, and the legend goes, according to the ESPN story that they did on this, that that was the turning point where they said, all right, Dabo, you get to be the head coach. Full-time job. And according to a ESPN grade of coaching hires during the cycle. This is, uh, I believe, this, this guy works for SI, Pat Ford, who worked at ESPN at the time, gave this grade on the Clemson hiring of Swinney, who is, quote, quote, who was recruiting coordinator and wide receivers coach until Tommy Bowden was whacked midseason. The grade, D+. Plus. Swinney was part and parcel of a failed season, but somehow got a promotion out of the deal. Who knew that beating Duke in Virginia could lead to such ample rewards? Clemson fans loved the fact that the Tigers closed the regular season by beating rival South Carolina. But hey, Bowden beat the Gamecocks seven times in nine tries, and look where that got him. Swinney has the same thing going for him that Sarkeesian has at Washington. The in-conference competition in the ACC isn't that stiff. And this was a sentiment felt by a lot of Clemson fans. People nationally and in South Carolina did not like the hire of Dabo Swinney. They thought it was crazy that Dabo was going to be the head coach with no coordinating experience. And now the whole program was his, at least in the short term. And Clemson committed like a five-year contract to Dabo. And it ends up being a lightning in a bottle moment because nobody knows exactly how best to hire coaches. We say all the time about good and bad coaching hires in the NFL or in college football, and we're often really, really wrong. The people doing the hiring are often really, really wrong. Clemson lucked their way into Dabo, who just happened to be on the staff when Tommy Bowden was fired, and they had the gall to weather the storm and promote him after the fact, even though he had never been a coordinator at any spot and would not have probably been qualified for even a lot of group of five jobs 
as a head coach, nonetheless taking over at Clemson. And by the way, the program did not immediately turn around. This was Clemson of 2008 making what was the equivalent of a small school hire in bringing in the incumbent, paying him slightly less, and keeping the program in a place where they already were, which is eight wins, eight wins, nine wins the season before to keep the recruiting base going because Dabo was the lead recruiter. That was the thing he had going for him. They made the hire in an effort to keep everything stable. The exact thing that I bagged on Notre Dame for last week when they hired Marcus Freeman, which is the players might still leave anyways, even if you keep things in place. Now, to be fair, Notre Dame appears to really have not liked Brian Kelly and is fine with Marcus Freeman coming in, and the players do appear to stay. Three years from now, we'll reevaluate once Freeman's recruiting his own players. But it seems like Dabo Swinney was hired as an appease-the-locker-room type of hire to keep all of the players they'd recruited over the past few seasons in place. And so, this takes us into, I guess, like, part two of the oral history, which is the turnaround, or like Dabo Swinney getting the program in his own image, and the beginning of laying the foundation for Clemson. 2009, 2010, 2011, this is where players start moving out of the old guard and Dabo's recruiting his own players. And there's a growing pain in there. They win nine games in 2009, six games in 2010, and then 2011, they have this turning point for the program where you start to see the change and success of Dabo's recruiting because they start off the season with a win while being unranked, winning at home against Auburn, pulling off an upset there. Next week, they play against Florida State, who's ranked 11 at the time. They're ranked 21, get a win at home against Florida State. Then they go to Virginia Tech. They're ranked number 13. Virginia Tech is ranked number 11. They win At Virginia Tech, it would be Virginia Tech's only conference loss of 2011. Virginia Tech would go on to win the conference championship, by the way, that year. Still up to until last week when Kenny Pickett won the ACC championship, the last time that an ACC Coastal team won the ACC championship with Tyrod Taylor that year. Clemson wins that game. They're ranked number eight. Beat Boston College, beat Maryland. Both of those teams weren't very good, but still get wins there. Win at home against North Carolina. And so they start off the year 8-0 and in 2011 and get ranked as high as number 6 in the country, which puts them at least with a puncher's chance of making it to the college national championship, which at the time was the BCS national championship. And they're at least in the ballpark because if they go undefeated, they would make it to such a game. And then they lose to unranked Georgia Tech and they lose to unranked NC State. And the season kind of falls off after that. They lose to South Carolina. They lose in a bowl game, the Orange Bowl, by the way, uh, to West Virginia. But they do end up winning the ACC championship that year. So in 2011, third year with Dabo, they win the ACC championship, not playing for anything big. They make it to the Orange Bowl. They get absolutely destroyed in the Orange Bowl. So took advantage of a weak conference that year and win a championship in 2011. And this is where the fundamental change starts to begin at Clemson is in 2012. Because now entering the equation coming off of winning an ACC championship is a change 
in the university's evaluation of athletics and football. Because in 2012, Clemson pays to hire Dan Radakovich from Georgia Tech and begins the process of committing extra resources as much as $10 million a year to the football program, which is a lot by the standards of that time. For, for reference, the University of Miami just invested an extra $30 million a year into the football program, and that turned around for them basically just getting into the big game of LSU and Oklahoma of like these tier two level programs. And again, Clemson at the time is not a big program. They are eighth in the ACC in athletic budget. They had outperformed expectations with second and third place finishes with Tommy Bowden, who ends up getting fired for continuous second and third place finishes. There's an old phrase for it, which is Clemsoning, which is always having these catastrophic failures towards the back end of your season. And so this is where Radakovich comes in at a time where the school is is willing to invest more money into the football program in hopes of generating a revenue return in the changing landscape of college football, which in fairness to them was about 10 years ahead of their time in seeing the changing landscape of college football and the fact that you can start investing ridiculously larger amounts of resources into your program and get into the big game as other schools begin to play cost-cutting and uh, the, the programs as a whole start to move more towards SEC-centric powers and the ACC starts divesting from football because it's returning to its roots of being a basketball conference. And so... Clemson is ahead of the curve on this, and part of that process is hiring Brent Venables as defensive coordinator in 2012, at the time, one of the highest paid assistant coaches in college football before he ever, you know, before he was ever actually doing any of the big defensive play calling, because previously he was the defensive coordinator at Oklahoma which had the Big 12 reputation of everyone's going to score 45 points and no defense is ever going to be played. And so when Mike Stoops gets put in as defensive coordinator as a favor to Bob Stoops, Venables is available, turns down head coaching jobs, by the way, to go coach at Clemson. And this is, again, the team that just won the ACC championship and is trying to build it up. And Venables ends up being, for the next decade, one of the best coordinator hires in all of college football. And this is something that's super important to recognize in college football is that coordinator hires can make or break certain coaches. Catastrophic coordinator hires actually have gotten coaches fired in recent years, not just Ed Orgeron and Dan Mullen, but also at smaller programs like Steve Adazio at Colorado State or David Cutcliffe at Duke. Like even the small programs that aren't playing for these national powerhouse rankings if you mess up on those hires, you will end up like really f- like it's the end of what you have because those guys are also recruiters. And so Venables comes in and this is a turning point for the program because they're also investing money for Venables to go out and be a lead recruiter. Dabo, who was obviously the lead recruiter beforehand, they are going out and saying, how can we go recruit players into the program and give them the resources to do so? In 2012, Clemson had $69 million nice invested per year in revenue. In 2014, that number goes up to $75 million. Radakovich negotiates a new Nike contract. By 2019, that number goes from $75 million to $133 million invested into the Clemson program. At the time, 
in 2019, it was the 22nd best in college football. So again, Clemson's not even in the big game now. It's just that Clemson is getting ready to start playing this game by investing lots of money into their athletic program. At the time, they were ranked 9th out of 14 in the ACC, going back to 2011. In the eight years after hiring Radakovich and after hiring Venables as one of the highest paid assistants in college football, they go above Virginia Tech, above Georgia Tech, above Miami, above North Carolina, above NC State, and that right, th- and by the way, they finished third in the rankings, kind of tied with Louisville and behind by a good amount Florida State. So Florida State is obviously the major power in the ACC. They had been that way for years. They dominated the conference with uh, with Bobby Bowden for like 20 years, and then with Jimbo Fisher on the back end, which we'll talk about in a second. But Clemson getting into that game is more important for this story and telling how Clemson becomes a dynasty, not even getting into the national game, but just getting into the, we're going to outspend our ACC opponents. That's part. That's a big part of this story. And Radakovich and Venables represent the change in mindset from the top on down at Clemson towards athletics and resources invested towards athletics. Because within six years, they double their athletic budget at a time that schools are not doing this. Like them getting from 50th in the country or the 40s in the country up to 22nd is not something every school is doing. In fact, very few schools are doing it because the SEC and Big Ten already established programs are already spending that amount of money. And also Texas and Oklahoma and USC and Oregon, they're also in the mix there. But they're not going from a point where they're not spending money at all to now spending money. This is a change in the Clemson program that tells the story of how this dynasty comes to be, in part, because without that change, the next step can't actually happen for Clemson. And that next step begins in 2012. This next era between 2012 and 2014, after their first ACC championship, is really just defined by Clemson being second to a Florida State dynasty. Florida State had a lightning in a bottle moment themselves, although they had the tons of resources to do it. And after transitioning from Bobby Bowden to Jimbo Fisher and going through the growing pains of that, including in 2011 when they lose to Clemson and Clemson wins the ACC championship, this is where you start to see the transition, where Clemson is a national program now, but They just happen to be every year behind Florida State. And there's no shame to that in the part of Clemson. Like, they make it to another Orange Bowl. They make it to the Chick-fil-A Bowl, which is now called the Peach Bowl. So they play in two New Year's Six Bowl games in this period. It's just that they're not a national power because they're just behind Jameis Winston, Kelvin Benjamin, uh, Dalvin Cook, and that dominate... I don't think Dalvin Cook would have been there at that point. But anyways, they're behind that dominant... Uh, Devonta Freeman is who I'm thinking of. Devonta Freeman was the running back on those teams. That dominant Florida State team that wins a national championship in 2013 and makes the college football playoff in 2014. They just had significantly more resources than Clemson. Clemson was getting to the point of spending at the level of a Florida State, but at the time Florida State had an athletic budget of 120, I'm sorry, not 120, 110 million at in 2012 dollars, I think now they're somewhere between 150 and 175 million. 
Florida State is in that national power game because they'd been doing it for 20 years. They had a large donor base. They had generated a lot of revenue with a 100,000-seat stadium. So Clemson's very good during this period. And then in 2014, this is when Clemson has their lightning-in-a-bottle moment. And Clemson's lightning-in-a-bottle moment comes in 2014 when they bring in Deshaun Watson. And Deshaun Watson's story at Clemson is the turning point for the Clemson dynasty because it sets up what's going to be the next two years of Clemson taking the next leap because they land a generational talent at a place that does not land generational talents very often. Usually when you think of the best players in the history of college football, Florida is usually a place you think of. You think of Texas, USC, even Alabama to a certain extent recently. Oklahoma has had Heisman Trophy winners over the years. Like Clemson has not had a Heisman Trophy winner in its program's history. And this is not surprising because Clemson was never in that game to compete for nationally great players, like five-star recruits that often win Heisman Trophies. Even people who get close to winning Heisman Trophies are usually some level of four- and five-star recruit because to be one of the three best players in all of football in an entire year's class, you usually have some sort of bigger, stronger, faster physical gift compared to everyone else. And sometimes that just leads you to a butt-kiss award for linebacker of the year or defensive player. The Heisman Trophy specifically is sometimes running back, but overwhelmingly getting that generational gift at the quarterback position, at the most important position in all of sports, you land that generational talent. And Clemson kind of lucked their way into it. Dabo Swinney was on the recruiting trail during this 2012, 2013, 2014 season. By the way, at a time where it took five years of success to even be in a position that he could recruit four and five star quarterbacks. And he was definitely not in the game for Deshaun Watson until geographic location comes into play and you start to realize where Deshaun Watson's coming from because he's not being recruited by the University of Georgia, which is his local school. Deshaun Watson's from the Atlanta area. And so he's looking around the rest of the Southeast and Dabo Swinney is aggressively pursuing him for whatever reasons Dabo Swinney saw in Deshaun Watson other than just Deshaun Watson being this fantastic prospect, which everyone could see at the time. But why Dabo Swinney committed so hard to Deshaun Watson, who looked like he was falling through the cracks a little bit. Like Deshaun Watson was getting uh, interest from Florida State. He was getting interest from Florida, the University of Miami, Alabama even was recruiting a little bit here and there. Deshaun Watson was falling through the cracks and Dabo Swinney went to him and basically said, if you commit to us, because honestly we know we're out of our league on this one, if you commit to Clemson, I will not recruit a quarterback for three years. And I read this in Deshaun Watson's book back in 2020. This was the start of 2020 was when his book came out. And he talked about the recruiting process and how he was falling through the cracks a bit and how Dabo Swinney basically promised him, you will start right away. I will not recruit another quarterback for the three years while you're here if you commit to Clemson. And Deshaun Watson does commit to Clemson for whatever his connection is personally to Dabo Swinney. Deshaun Watson makes the commitment to Clemson that nobody's really making at that time. And so that commitment from Deshaun Watson 
I mean, it reminds me of Justin Herbert at Oregon, where Oregon gets Justin Herbert because he's not going to national recruiting camps, and he happens to live in Eugene, Oregon. It's a similar lightning-in-a-bottle moment there, where the greatest gift for Clemson was Dabo Swinney happening to be on the staff when Tommy Bowden was fired, and Deshaun Watson happening to live close to Clemson, basically living in the local pipeline, because Georgia and South Carolina are neighboring states, and that the University of Georgia was not interested in Deshaun Watson. That seems to be the great lightning-in-a-bottle moment, was just Deshaun Watson happened to be born near Clemson's campus, and that Dabo Swinney had spent five years building a program that could even think of recruiting Deshaun Watson because they had the ACC title in 2011, won the Peach Bowl in 2012, played in the Orange Bowl again in 2013. That stability of being a Tier 2 program got them into the game for Deshaun Watson. When they get Deshaun Watson in 2015, that's when you start to see the program change. With a lot of players, by the way, who were previously recruited. Some NFL players, some players who just happen to have experience with Tier 2 players in college football. Which is not to say, like, this is a bad team having Tier 2 players. Like, it just means you don't have bigger, stronger, faster players like Alabama, like Ohio State, like Georgia, like Florida State had at the time. With second-tier players, mostly four-star, three-and-a-half-star recruits, players who are good enough to get you into the top ten, similar players to, like, a roster of Ole Miss this year. Like, with four-star recruits, basically all four-star recruits and three-and-a-half-star recruits, and one lightning-in-a-bottle quarterback, Clemson is able to win the ACC. And the 2015 season is so fascinating because it was not a guarantee for Clemson. They started out the 2015 season preseason ranked number 12 in the country. They play Notre Dame, who's ranked 6 in the fourth week of the season. And they barely sneak by Notre Dame. They made a game winner with like two minutes left to go to beat Notre Dame. And that gets them up to number 6 in the country. And then they beat Georgia Tech. They beat Boston College. They play their entire season without playing another top 10 ranked opponent until the conference championship game against North Carolina, which is a game, by the way, they win only because Deshaun Watson has four touchdowns in the game. And so they got to Florida State, who, by the way, Jameis Winston had just left Florida State at this time, but they got bailed out early in the season because Florida State, who was ranked, I believe, fourth in the country at the time, if I remember from research, lost two weeks prior to Georgia Tech, who did not win another conference game the rest of the season. Like, they lost to the worst team in the ACC in one of the largest upsets of the last decade in college football. Ranked four in the country, they lose to Georgia Tech. Now they fall to number 16. They free fell a little bit. And it's like Clemson and Florida State switched places. It's like Florida State lost the national recruiting power they had. Clemson filled the void because they got that one lightning-in-a-bottle prospect, like how Florida State got Jameis Winston in 2012 and leapfrogged Clemson, who won the ACC championship the year prior. That flip-flop of Deshaun Watson gets him over Florida State, wins the ACC championship, number one seed in the college football playoff. They wallop Oklahoma in a great game Deshaun Watson played. Deshaun Watson ends up finishing third in the Heisman Trophy final 
fin- finishes third in the Heisman Trophy that year, only behind Derrick Henry and I can't remember who was second that year. Maybe was it not Mariota. Maybe Deshaun Watson did finish second, but he finished either second or third in the Heisman Trophy rankings in 2015. And that lightning in a bottle moment with second tier players and a generational quarterback gets Clemson to and an easy schedule. That that combination of easy schedule and not having an upset loss, easy schedule plus generational quarterback plus second tier players gets Clemson to the national championship game in 2015 and they lose to Alabama simply because Alabama has bigger, stronger, faster players than Clemson. Clemson puts up a great fight. They only lose by five, even though part of that was a backdoor touchdown. So they really lose by 12. But the fact that they get to this point is a huge victory for Clemson because they, you know, they they were not supposed to be in that position. They were not supposed to be a team that makes it to the college football playoff and beats Oklahoma, another tier two program in college football, to get to the championship game. And then this brings us back to 2016, when pretty much the entire Clemson team is back, and you can start to recruit five and four-star recruits. Might not be immediate, but you can start to recruit some of those top players in the country. In 2015, Clemson had the ninth best recruiting class in the country, which at the time was the best recruiting class they'd had uh, other than the, the Deshaun Watson class the year prior because Deshaun Watson gave them a huge bump. Best recruiting class they'd had in 10 years at Clemson. Ninth best recruiting class in the country in 2015. If you look at the roster from the 2016 championship team, it's a lot of freshmen. It's a lot of sophomores on that team. Uh, the people that we remember are obviously players from the 2018 team, but this is when Clemson starts to have a national recruiting base because they can start recruiting the players that Alabama is recruiting, that Ohio State is recruiting, and you start to see some of it because you have, uh, going down the list here, Ray Ray McLeod as a sophomore, Christian Wilkins as a sophomore, Dexter Lawrence, freshman that year, uh, and then you have some guys like Ben Bulware who are like the second-tier guys who have been four-year starters. Trayvon Mullen, he would go to the NFL, freshman. Isaiah Simmons, top-ten pick, freshman. Kayvon Wallace, NFL draft pick, freshman that year. Uh, Tanner Muse, he's in the NFL now. Redshirt freshman during that first national championship season. And so you start to see the guys slowly work their way into the program who would end up being the foundation for a dynastic run after. And the beauty for them was that in 2016, they got a second chance with Deshaun Watson. And if you look at the players who are like stars on that team, you have Mike Williams, pretty good, and drafted high in the NFL draft, pretty good player. Wayne Gallman is the starting running back on the championship team. CJ Fuller ends up being someone who gets time on that team. He ends up being like not really an NFL player. It's a lot of people who are like not, who don't have NFL futures, but they're still very good college football players in keeping Clemson, you know, a top 10 team for four consecutive years. It's with Deshaun Watson and with that freshman class, with some people giving significant minutes or significant time, like Christian Wilkins, like Dexter Lawrence, 
like Isaiah Simmons, like Kayvon Wallace and Trayvon Mullen, like future future four and five star guys that they're now able to recruit but haven't quite come into their own, some of them make significant impacts. But overwhelmingly, it's the exact same team in 2016 that was there in 2015 being a year older. And again, they get back through the ACC championship. One little hiccup against Syracuse, but still win the ACC championship, make the college football playoff, shut out Ohio State, make it back to the national championship, rematch against Alabama. And this is the game that, if you remember correctly, was where Alabama had the lead at the very end and Ohio State, I'm sorry, not Ohio State, they they crushed Ohio State the week before. They get to the national championship, they're down 31-28 at the end of the game. There is two and a half minutes left to go, Deshaun Watson has the football. And Deshaun Watson leads Clemson down the field against Alabama in one of the great drives in the history of college football. Goes down the field, gets it inside the 10-yard line with 16 seconds left to go. The clock winds down to 8 seconds. And on third down, Clemson decides that they are going to throw the ball on a flat route, so it's not into the end zone where if the ball scores, they win. If it ends up short, they don't. And this is a good, I mean, again, they could maybe call a timeout real quickly, but they are playing a very dangerous game with the clock at this point. So there's eight seconds. It's first and goal, and they have they have one timeout left. And Deshaun Watson does this at the end. Time left in the game, one second. With one second left to go, Clemson won the national championship against Alabama in like a lightning in a bottle moment that sometimes doesn't work out. It almost didn't work out in 2015 for them. They just had a run it back year. They got a second chance and they didn't mess it up in the beforehand, which sometimes happens. College football has weird results all the time. It happened to Ohio State this year. It happened to Oklahoma this year, even though Oklahoma kind of moved on from everyone after that. Like, it happens sometimes. There's weird moments. It happened to Clemson this year. And it happens in college football sometimes. And so Clemson got that second chance in 2016, and they win the national championship with one second left. One play, otherwise they're going to overtime in 2016. And they are evenly matched with that Bama team. 2017 and 2018, so now Deshaun Watson is leaving for the NFL. Now some of the guys that were recruited before are leaving for the NFL. And this is a transition period defined by their stability and the fact that for a brief period of time, they're now national champions, which means they can recruit at a national level. Tony Elliott, Brent Venables, and Jeff Scott were the coordinators during the championship run. Scott was the wide receivers coach and co-offensive coordinator. Elliott, running backs, running backs, quarterbacks coach and co-offensive coordinator. Venables, obviously the defensive coordinator. 
Venables gets paid the highest salary of any defensive assistant in college football. Again, coming from the program that is working its way towards being 22nd in the country in athletic budget. They're willing to pay a huge amount to keep Brett Venables in place. A a huge portion of their percentage of athletic budget. $1.5 million was at the time the number for Brett Venables. And Brent Venables stays in Clemson through this transition period when he is, again, he's being interviewed for all, or he he has the option to be interviewed for all kinds of head coaching jobs, turns it down. Uh, Tony Elliott ends up staying at Clemson. Jeff Scott ends up staying at Clemson through this period. And that stability helps them recruit nationally for the first time. Well, really the second time, because they started the year before when they played in the national championship. Now they have the national championship Now, they build off of that lightning-in-a-bottle moment, including by bringing in, in 2018, Trevor Lawrence. So in 2017, Clemson has Kelly Bryant as their starter. They win the ACC championship, but they get dragged in the playoff by Alabama. Again, with some four- and five-star recruits. But Alabama is obviously a team filled with four and five star recruits. Alabama wins that game. They go on to win the national championship against Georgia a week later by subbing in Jalen Hurts, or subbing into Atagovailoa for Jalen Hurts. And so 2017, they lose in the semifinal of the playoff, win the ACC championship because in 2018, they finish in a year where the ACC has literally no teams ranked in. The, the top 25 at the end of the season besides them. Louisville's lost Lamar Jackson at this point. By the way, we didn't mention there's a Lamar Jackson versus Deshaun Watson game in there that Louisville ends up a half yard short, like measuring on the chains short of beating Clemson and making it so that Deshaun Watson wouldn't have gotten to play in that national championship game anyway. So half a yard against Louisville and one second left against Hunter Renfro ends up winning a national championship for Clemson. And they end up recruiting on a national level, bring in four and five star guys instead of recruiting the four and three and a half star guys they had before. And now you start to see Clemson competing on a national level for the first time. In 2018, they just dominate the season because that year they bring back everyone from the 2015 and 2016 teams, including the best defensive line in the in college football history, some would argue, because they had three first-round picks and a third-round pick on that defensive line. Going into the 2018 season, here are the players who leave Clemson. Third-round pick linebacker Dorian O'Daniel, sixth-round pick Deion Kane, sixth-round pick Ray Ray McLeod. They don't have any first or second and one-third, fourth, or fifth-round pick. They have one day-two pick leaving for the NFL. They replace it with a class that uh, they they replace it with a recruiting class that finished seventh best nationally in 2017. So this is replacing or everyone basically staying, including Austin Bryant, who could have gone to the draft, Christian Wilkins, who could have gone to the draft, Travis Etienne staying for an extra year, Hunter Renfro staying for an extra year. They bring everyone back for the 2018 season and they just kick everyone's holy ass that season the 2018 Clemson team is like we have all of the players from the 2016 team still around we have new recruits that are four and five star recruits that we're recruiting because we won the 2016 national championship and to add 
everything together. Another lightning-in-a-bottle quarterback of Trevor Lawrence. To put everything together, they recruit the number one quarterback in the country, never loses in high school, who again just happens to be born in the neighboring state to Clemson in Georgia. Georgia recruits Justin Fields, who also happens to be born in the same state, literally like across the the city from where Trevor Lawrence is. So again, they get a lightning in a bottle moment of these two quarterbacks happen to both be from the local recruiting pool. All three, Deshaun Watson, Trevor Lawrence, and Justin Fields, three generational quarterbacks in college football, all happen to be from the state of Georgia, which has one good team in Georgia. Sorry, Georgia Tech, you're just straight ass, and you're running the, at the time, they're running the triple option offense, and you're the next closest team. Like, Alabama has Tua. You're the next closest team recruiting quarterbacks. So they get Trevor Lawrence. And Trevor Lawrence is a generational player with a bunch of four and five star players who just dominate the 2018 season, just absolutely dominate everybody during the national championship season. They play Texas A&M win the first week or second week of the season. They played a non-important game before that. They end up playing Wake Forest win 63 to three, NC State 41-7, Florida State 59-10, Louisville, 77-16, ranked Boston College at Boston College, 27-7, Duke, 35-6, South Carolina, rival game, 56-35, ACC Championship against unranked Pitt, 42-10, Notre Dame, 30-3, just crushed them in the college football playoff, Alabama in the National Championship, 44-16, just absolutely dominate because it was a perfect confluence events of we have all of the players from a team that already won a national championship we have all the players who were recruited in the aftermath of winning a national championship who are four and five star guys and we got the generational quarterback again because of winning that national championship and Clemson just dominates for a second national championship in a way that makes them the standard. This is where Clemson becomes a dynasty and not a one-off moment in time is because after the 2016 championship, they keep everything in place with Radakovich's athletic director. Dabo stays as head coach, which was probably going to happen anyways, but there was still a possibility that he goes to one of the dominant programs. Dabo ends up staying. Elliott stays. Jeff Scott stays in place. Brent Venables stays in place. All of the players come back for their final season and the per, the team of mostly four and five star seniors and the occasional four and five star sophomores with Trevor Lawrence as the lightning in a bottle quarterback is just a perfect confluence of events that just dominates college football that year. And they still stay together as a staff. The problem after that is that you just lose too much talent. After that season, Cleland Furl goes to the draft. Christian Wilkins goes to the draft in the first round. Dexter Lawrence, defensive tackle, goes to the draft. Trayvon Mullen, we talked about him earlier. He gets drafted in the second round. Austin Bryant drafted in the fourth round. Hunter Renfro drafted in the fifth round. Trey Lamar, he's drafted, or he gets signed undrafted after that. They just lose so many guys in the years after 
that it does become difficult to replicate that. And they get Isaiah Simmons back for an extra year. They get Travis Etienne back for an extra year. They've recruited guys like Justin Ross. Uh, They've recruited T. Higgins. They have essentially what looks to be four future first and second round picks at the wide receiver position, a really, really good running back who ends up breaking the ACC records, and you still have that generational quarterback. So they still have tons of talent. It's just that in 2019, they happen to go up against teams that also have a lot of talent similar to them once they get deep into the season. And so in 2019, you have Clemson, again, you know, playing in a really, really weak conference. They play Texas A&M. They win that game. They don't play another top 25 opponent until the conference championship against 23 Virginia, who they win by 45 against. Again, they win against inferior opponents is a really, really bad time in the ACC because the only two teams that can, can can compete with them financially are Florida State, who has totally fallen off the face of the earth, and Louisville, who has now totally fallen off the face of the earth because Louisville fired Bobby Petrino and went back to caring about basketball. Florida State, we've talked about this on a previous podcast, just the entire program <laughs> falls apart at Florida State uh, following the Jimbo Fisher leaving, Willie Taggart being hired, Mike Norvell being hired. They just spent so much money that eventually they just ran out and had to kind of like succumb to the fact that they were one of the worst programs in the ACC because they had just made so many catastrophic mistakes in mismanagement, like on a grand scale of the history of college football levels of mismanagement. And so Clemson's just running through a conference where nobody can compete financially against them. This was another year where at the end of the year, no other ACC teams were ranked in the top 25. This is the origin of those ACC jokes we'd been making for like six, not 60, like the last two years and pretty much every week on memes of the weekend, which is that conference is so bad and they all just beat each other up. The ACC is a really, really crappy conference. The ACC Coastal is a really, really crappy conference, not because they're like bad or that they're all just, they just all spend the same amounts of money. None of them at the national level of a team like at like every SEC school, almost every Big Ten school, a number of Big 12 schools and a number of Pac-12 schools. You only have like two teams that actually spend at that level. And so Clemson is one of those teams and they happen to take advantage of a national powerhouse moment to just dominate a conference of middling teams. And so Clemson gets back to the national championship and this is where we realize that they lose all of those players on the defensive side of the ball who are seniors and juniors, like the players we mentioned before, um, Christian Wilkins, Austin Bryant, Dexter Lawrence, Cleveland Furl, all first round and, and in the case of Bryant, third round picks, all you know top draft picks when they'd never had any of them on the previous national champion teams. They had one or two, but this is like an entire defensive line and linebacking core filled with four and five star players leaving. And they still have some of those players there because they're good enough to get to that point and beat Ohio State, another team, by the way, that's recruiting at a national level, but it doesn't give them that gigantic competitive advantage of everyone else. It just makes it so that they get to the final dance, but aren't necessarily guaranteed against the Alabamas, against Ohio State, against Georgia. They are now the standard of a tier one program, a team that we pencil into the college football playoff every year. And they barely get away with a win against Ohio State. 
This is that game, if you remember, a couple years ago. We were doing a podcast at this point where uh, Justin Fields has the ball going down to win the game, and he throws an interception because someone runs a wrong route, and Clemson wins the game off of an interception in the end zone with 40 seconds left to go. And so that gets Clemson to the national championship game, and then Clemson gets boat raced in the national championship game by a lightning in a bottle LSU team. And LSU has the resources to compete their, you know, top 10 athletic budget, top seven athletic budget in college football. They just happen to get Joe Burrow transfer into the program. They happen to have tons and tons of corners and wide receivers, like first round picks all across the board, just a lightning in a bottle moment for LSU that obviously falls apart later. They, they break every SEC and national passing record that year. Uh, they have Jamar Chase, Justin Jefferson, and uh, the guy who, who got drafted by the Panthers, whose name I'm, I'm blanking on now, all have over 20 touchdowns in a season. It's, it's really amazing how much they dominate uh, this, this year in college football, uh, even to the extent Clemson dominated in 2018. Like That was LSU that year. And this is when, after the 2019 run, this is where the fractures start to kick in a little bit. Because Lawrence and ETN stay for 2020. ETN actually stays for his senior year in 2020. And Justin Ross suffers a catastrophic injury to start the year. Players end up going. The foundation stays in place, but this is where the fractures start to begin because 2020 essentially becomes a borrowed year for Clemson. Clemson goes into 2020 not expecting Travis Etienne to come back. They get a pleasant surprise that Etienne comes back. Trevor Lawrence is there for an extra year, and there's already talks like, should Trevor Lawrence just sit out the entire season during the COVID-19 pandemic and just get ready to, because he knows he's going to be the number one pick in the NFL draft. And so you're playing with house money on Trevor Lawrence, and Clemson goes through the pandemic in 2020. By the way, before that, the first fracture is Jeff Scott, the co-offensive coordinator, leaving to take the head coaching job at the University of South Florida. And it doesn't seem like this is a big like fall-off for Clemson. Alabama replaces assistant coaches all the time. Ohio State replaces assistant coaches all the time. Like this is a thing that happens. But when you're Clemson and this is a lightning in a bottle moment, we haven't seen them do it with other assistants and they don't have the financial resources to compete with other programs. Even like, even though they have tons of money, they aren't able to compete with say Alabama. If Alabama wants to hire someone away from them or to compete with Oklahoma, if Oklahoma wants to hire one of their assistants or Ohio State, Alabama and those programs have the brand recognition and the financial resources to simply take a step above Clemson. And so when Jeff Scott leaves, Tony Elliott fills the offensive coordinator role full time, and it's the start of what will look like whether Clemson has to pivot from the dynasty that they've had. And this is where the fractures begin because the game where Trevor Lawrence, we talked about it off the top, the game where Trevor Lawrence ends up having a COVID-19 protocol moment. He goes into the COVID protocol. He's, uh, you know, he, this is pre-vaccination. So at the time, Trevor Lawrence is uh, allowed to go to the game because he's continuing to test negative, but he's not allowed to play in the game. And so DJ Oyunglele, the, the 
top recruit who comes in, the guy they're hoping is going to be the next, you know, lightning in a bottle quarterback, DJ Oyungalale ends up having a okay game against Notre Dame, nationally ranked Notre Dame, Notre Dame who's in the ACC for one year, and Notre Dame wins in double overtime against Clemson. It's the first time they've lost in the regular season since 2016, which is kind or sorry, 2017, I think was that. Yeah, 2017, they lose to Syracuse. And so it's the first time in three years that they lose a regular season game. Not that that's like the end-all be-all for Clemson, but it's something that wouldn't have happened in the past. And even if they have Trevor Lawrence, it probably doesn't happen. But Notre Dame is one of these second-tier programs that can now beat Clemson. And it doesn't feel like a one-off moment because it feels like Notre Dame is going to make it to the playoff. And Clemson's going to have to fight to make it to the playoff because now one more loss, Clemson's not going to make the college football playoff in Trevor Lawrence's final season and in Travis Etienne's final season. And so they do end up winning out the rest of the season, again, simply because the ACC has no other good teams in the conference at this time. After the loss to Notre Dame, they played Pitt and they played Virginia Tech. They don't have to play a conference championship. Sorry, they play the conference championship game against Notre Dame. They womp Notre Dame because they're still really good and they put Trevor Lawrence in and Notre Dame's a second-tier program. But Clemson wins the ACC championship and they get to the playoff against Ohio State and Justin Fields last year we talked about this all the time Justin Fields has like a man among boys moment with the one of the greatest games in the history of college football just absolutely dominates uh the Clemson defense and Dabo Swinney has the whole comment about how uh they were the 11th ranked team in the country because they didn't play enough games and they were up 35 14 at halftime and just never looked back after that just absolutely dominated the game and Justin Fields has you know like an all-time legendary performance and that's that's kind of like where it all falls apart from there because in 2020 they had uh sorry in 2020 they still had the third best recruiting class and then in 2021 they still have the fifth best recruiting class and yet still the program can't stay on top Yes, they get to the college football playoff because third and fifth recruiting classes, you would pencil that in. But DJ Oyunglele is not an NFL quarterback that they thought he was going to be. And they can recruit another one or go to the transfer portal to get another one. But at the same time, the damage is done because you look up and you say, okay, where can we find the next guy? And Clemson, from this little bit of a season where they lose to Georgia to start the 2021 season and then you know their offense is really struggling to score points this is where you start to see reputation start to kick in a little bit more and so this is where you know losing to nc state is like oh my gosh what is happening to your program losing to pittsburgh and it's like oh my gosh uh kenny pickett is a better offense than clemson at this point and clemson falling off is just a sign of just they don't have the special players anymore they don't have the special players that Ohio State finds, like C.J. Stroud and, and Bryce Young, not knowing who they are at the start of the year and immediately becoming Heisman Trophy guys, which we thought D.J. Oyunglele was going to be, but you know it turns out he's not that quarterback, and that's okay. Justin Ross coming back for an extra year. He's not the same player he is post-injury. 
they don't have the same defensive tackles and defensive linemen the way that we're used to them. Like, yeah, they've got a couple five stars here and there, but it's not the same team that it once was. Which brings me back to a big picture question about Clemson, which was we we associated Clemson in the same breath as Alabama. But as we look back, how many of these Clemson players actually go on to have great NFL careers? Because I'm looking back on Clemson at this point. I'm thinking, who are the from this six year run of dominance? Who are the players that translate to the NFL and have immediate success from Clemson? And the first name is obviously Deshaun Watson. Deshaun Watson has huge success, but he's the lightning in a bottle guy that jumpstarts all of this. So Deshaun Watson's the guy that jumpstarts the dynasty. Obviously, he ends up being great. And you just go down the line to, you know, Mike Williams, drafted high, but he's a fine wide receiver. You know, he's not a game-changing wide receiver. He's a wide receiver, too, for the Chargers. Love him. He's a very good player, but not like a transcendent star of the league, the way that you can just go down a bullet point list of Alabama and Ohio State players, who are, again, Alabama and Ohio State are the teams that we've put Clemson in the same breath with over the last six or seven years because Clemson has won the two national championships and played in virtually every college football playoff. If I go to Ohio State, I can go right down the line to, you know, obviously just right off the top, Marshawn Lattimore, uh, the Bosa brothers, just all up and up and down the rosters. You can find Ohio State players. Ohio State does a thing at their stadium where they list Ohio State players in the NFL, and there's like 17 of them right off the bat. And again, I just don't have the research in front of me. We don't have to talk about it with Alabama. Alabama puts five stars into the NFL every year. If I'm thinking of who the best Clemson players were, that have been drafted over this dynasty. I think of Deshaun Watson and I think of Trevor Lawrence. And as I go down the list of other guys, you have a few people here and there. Um, Mackenzie Alexander goes to the NFL, but he's not really a transcendent player. He's kind of more of a, you know, pretty good corner in the NFL. Uh, Shaq Lawson, he's an NFL player, but he's been on three different teams in three years now. He's not a game-breaking type of guy. Grady Jarrett is the one that I feel like he kind of, you know, he's a really, really good player. And so they have him obviously holding off that one. But then you kind of go down the list from the teams that have been there. Amari Rogers, not much. T. Higgins, very good player, but not really a game-breaking type of player. Cleland Furl was the number four pick in the draft, but Cleland Furl has been a, a pretty significant bust in the NFL. Christian Wilkins, fine player, but not a not a game-breaking NFL defensive lineman. There's not really any pro bowlers on the team outside of those guys. And you can put Trayvon Mullen in there, but he hasn't had a very good NFL career so far. He's on injured reserve this year. He had his first interception. He has one career interception in 20. I think 2020 was his only interception of his career. AJ Terrell is turning it around now. Like he's really really good and he was not looking great before that I think AJ Terrell is a very good player in there too Isaiah Simmons top 10 pick hasn't been a transcendent player yet in the NFL he's obviously got time there but if I asked you about Isaiah Simmons a lot of people are less high on him than they were coming out of the draft Dexter Lawrence yeah he started every game he's had but not a game-breaking player and so 
outside of the two quarterbacks and Grady Jarrett, but outside of the two quarterbacks for the most part, you have a team of four or five star guys and, and three and a half star guys, a dynastic team for six years that hasn't produced a lot of like game breaking talent. They never had game breaking talent except for at those two and three positions. Wide receivers up and down. The special running back of Travis Etienne, who was drafted in the first round and has obviously had injuries so far to start his career. Game-breaking running back. Really good wide receivers. And those two special quarterbacks. And I know Trevor Lawrence hasn't played great this year, but we all assume Trevor Lawrence is going to be very good in the NFL. The two game-breaking quarterbacks end up being what jumpstarts Clemson's run. And so when you take away the game-breaking quarterback... The dynasty can't sustain itself. And I think this is a byproduct of the first national championship being Clemson catching lightning in a bottle and the second national championship being pivoting to being a national powerhouse very, very well. Adjusting expectations from, holy shit, how did we win this championship to we can win championships every year if we recruit these players. And I think that's an everlasting credit to Dabo and Venables and Elliott and everyone at that Clemson program that they were able to pivot immediately and say, we can do this every single year and we can recruit the Alabama players and we can recruit Ohio State level players. It's when that well dries up that the dynasty comes to an end. And now in 2021, after a 9-3 and season where they're going to play Iowa State in the Cheez-It Bowl, you have the dynasty come to a close for, Ohio, for Clemson. And so they will probably not win national championships again because they would have to catch lightning in a bottle once again and have to do it by replacing the coaches on their staff. Which brings us back to the conversation of the Clemson dynasty in relation to Alabama. Because if we're thinking of any team that has given Alabama the strongest fight in the Nick Saban era, it is Clemson. Because we've seen Clemson beat Alabama multiple times. In the college football playoff era, Alabama has won three national championships out of the seven that have already been played. And every one of the seven before Alabama went through Alabama to win the national championship. LSU in 2019 beat Alabama in the regular season to win the SEC title. Clemson in 2018 and 2016 won the national championship against Alabama. Ohio State in 2014 won by beating Alabama in the semifinal. You can take this back a little bit further. Um, Alabama obviously wins the national championship in 2011 and 2012. 2013, they lose to Auburn. Auburn makes the championship game, loses to Florida State. But even still... You have Alabama being the standard everyone has to go through, and we associate the team that most took them down being Clemson. And Clemson gets a magical lightning-in-a-bottle run twice to win two championships in six years, and Alabama still stays on top as Clemson falls down. Part of that is just simply resources, but it is a testament to just how amazing Alabama has been because other programs have the same resources and they don't have the same longevity as Alabama. It's amazing that Clemson gets to the mountaintop, a lightning in a bottle dynasty. And still Alabama is out here winning after they, they go from being lower tier rising to the championship level, lightning in a bottle with Deshaun Watson, 
pivoting to becoming a national program and falling off all in the span of Alabama still winning national championships. It's really quite unbelievable how sustained that excellence is for Alabama. In relation to Clemson, which brings us back to the present, Venables leaving, Radakovich leaving, and the impending exit of Tony Elliott feels like this is the end of that run. This year felt like it was the beginning of that, and I said it would take years for them to pivot back, and now that everyone is jumping ship, after the continuity has been kind of the name of the game in the program, players coming back for senior seasons. The 2018 team built on players coming back for an extra year and building this dynastic powerhouse that other teams didn't have. The 2016 team being built on players playing through senior seasons and Tony Elliott and uh, Brett Venables staying, and Jeff Scott at the time, staying as assistants. When you see the breakdown slowly start, and it's been three years since Clemson has won the national championship. That's an eternity in college football time. Not by Alabama time, but in the rest of college football time. It's a little bit of an eternity. And so you see this run by Clemson is in line with historically great dynasties in college football. And you see a common denominator being Dabo. But if you think Dabo can turn it around immediately after in the same way Saban has done it at Alabama or in the way that Urban Meyer then into Ryan Day has done it at Ohio State, I don't think that's going to be the case. I think Clemson caught a lightning in a bottle dynasty. Not that Clemson's going to be what they were back in the 2000s again, but more so that Clemson is going to be a team in the second tier like Oklahoma, like LSU, like Notre Dame. That's where you're going to start to see them operate in is they can make the college football playoff because they can win the ACC and a one loss ACC team will get into the college football playoff and we're going to expand to 12 teams. So Clemson's going to have more chances to make the playoff and play against tougher opponents and maybe win playoff games and have more random champions than we currently have in college football. But I don't think Clemson is national championship good anymore. And I don't think they can get back to being national championship good without again catching a lightning in a bottle moment. Maybe they can do it. I just don't think it's going to happen. I would very, very much bet against that. And it all comes down to Deshaun Watson choosing Clemson, Hunter Renfro's butt hitting an end zone pylon, and it launches a dynasty in college football and a dynasty that operates just like most of the dynasties of the last 20 years, especially ones that have some kind of money. Florida State won a national championship with a one-two recruiting class run, and then they fell totally apart. USC won two national championships and almost won a third with Pete Carroll. Mismanagement leads to them falling apart. Florida wins multiple national championships, and they fall apart. University of Miami wins multiple national championships, and they fall apart. This is in line with more of the dynasties of the last 20 years in college football than it is with Alabama and Saban. And so I think it's time to focus on Clemson as their own dynasty that was, and we can celebrate it for what it was, and we don't have to constantly compare it to what it ha- what it is compared to Alabama. Because in the moment, it felt like those were the two powerhouses because Clemson was the team that had beaten Alabama twice. One by a butt on the pylon, and then transitioning that year to just having a team totally outmatched against Alabama, which happens. 
Alabama has only won 42% of the national championships during the college football playoff era. They're three for seven. And the team that won the national championship in the meantime went through Alabama to win said national championship. Clemson's 2018 team is one of the great teams in the history of college football. That'll be something they're remembered for as competing against Alabama. But we don't have to continuously compare them to Alabama anymore. And that's okay. Clemson is a hugely successful run in college football. They are an amazing experiment that other teams in that second and third tier can aspire to. That is what teams can point to and say, we can do that with the right lightning in a bottle moment. Doesn't mean it's going to happen, but we can do that if we just get a lightning in a bottle quarterback, a lightning in a bottle recruiter, a lightning in a bottle running back. We too have the resources to do what Clemson did. And if we got the chance to get there, we wouldn't mess up our opportunity exactly like how Clemson didn't mess up their opportunity in the same way LSU messed up their opportunity when getting there. They got to the mountain and then they fell apart afterwards pretty quickly. Like within one year, they fell apart afterwards. It happens. It happens a lot in college football, especially with the nefarious ways that people get there that aren't actually that nefarious, but you know, people be paying prospects. People be dropping bags of cash on the table, which is a good thing. It's just unfortunate that the NCAA is corrupt in that way. But anyways, Clemson is an amazing dynasty, a dynasty that chapter for what it was as a national powerhouse is pretty much over. It doesn't mean the Dabo era is over. They might make a college football playoff next year, but I don't think they're national powerhouses anymore. I think it's going to be a while before they get back to that. And maybe Dabo will stick around all the way through it, but Dabo has been there for 15 years. I think he's waiting for Saban to move on, and maybe that's the job that pries him from Clemson. But as you see the changing landscape in college football and coaches getting these gigantic contracts, and it's not like Clemson isn't paying Dabo a lot of money. They they wanted to get back in this game, and that's the reason Dabo is still there in the first place is because they're no longer paying the same amounts as Virginia Tech and North Carolina for their football programs. They got into that game because they had a national powerhouse, And they captured lightning in a bottle because they had the perfect coach with the resources to get that championship, keep everything together, and then build a 2018 one right after that was one of the great teams in the history of college football. And I don't think they can do it again, which is why the Clemson dynasty is officially over. And this is now a historical narrative, one that's still technically ongoing, but one that I feel like over the last two days we could kind of close the book on. We can start to write the book of what the Clemson dynasty was, and we can start it with a 75-minute long oral history of said dynasty. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in here to the Take It Easy podcast. We had a really, really fun show. Lots of great research here. This was really fun for me to do. I appreciate each and every one of you stopping in. Uh, make sure to leave a download, five-star review, follow all that good stuff here on Apple Podcast. Love you guys. Thank you for stopping in. I hope you enjoy a story like this or segments like this. It was really, really fun for me to make. Very tranquil, very relaxing afternoon, spending an hour going through research, 30 minutes prepping the podcast, and then spending another hour and a half doing it. It's a great way for me to spend my free time. Loved every second of this. 
Take it easy, everybody. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.